my name is Ryan McMakin. I am with the Mises Institute, and uh, I am the guy that uh, puts all those articles on the front page, and that's pretty much it. Oh, and then the the Austrian, I put that together, our physical print pub thing. But also, yeah. probably, the, probably the hardest working libertarian writer out there is like four articles a week. Oh, insane. right. I write a lot of articles, which I'm glad to see people read. Well, at least you're pretending like you, do, you are. So we'll just proceed from there and just assume that I'll, I'll mention my articles and I'll just assume you've read whatever article I'm referring to. Because, I mean, that's like common knowledge now what I write. And so, yeah, I do that. I write a bunch of articles. I edit them. People send them in. And then I, I, uh, I post them or I send the article back to the people who submit them. And we'll talk a little bit about what I want to see and why that's what I want to see. But my larger uh, background is uh, it's not libertarian or anything like that, uh, which is actually valuable in my position because then it gives me the ability to tell whether your article is remotely convincing to someone who isn't already a converted libertarian. Because I spent most of my career talking to people who think our ideas are absurd. So, and in my last job, I was the economist for the Colorado Division of Housing, which was a state agency, and uh, I was in charge of all like the, the the housing data that came out of there, like foreclosure rates and rent levels and all of that stuff. And what that what fell under that then was media relations. So I would deal with all the local media, business, press, stuff like that. Bloomberg would sometimes call. We'd sometimes get in the national media. Uh, and so I learned a lot in that position about establishing yourself and your organization as an expert who people will actually go to to try and get information, and also the importance of how you phrase then the information you communicate to the media. And uh, it's, there's a very specific way you do it, and you don't want to overdo it, and so we'll just look at some of the, the ins and outs of that. So, and before that, then, I was a lobbyist uh, at the State House in Denver uh, for a variety of small organizations. And... So we had lots of eleva elevator speeches, I guess, when you're a lobbyist. You try and convince someone to vote for your bill based on a 40-second summary. And so all of those things, all of those skills kind of come together in trying to write a short article that someone's going to pass around and find remotely convincing and not end up on Wikipedia, not end up on the Mises Institute's Wikipedia page as an example of how stupid people are at the Mises Institute. So that's one thing I look for, too, is, is there something in this article that someone's now going to quote 10 years from now as the illustration of just how stupid uh, somebody is at the Mises Institute? So, yeah, it's my job to filter out all that stuff, too, stuff that's going to come back and bite us in the ass later, like red flags, spotting red flags in articles is something I do as well. So I'll bring all of that sort of critical look at, at things that people submit to us, looking at it from an outsider's point of view, and how would normal person look at this sort of writing, and how can we use this format to make ourselves look better? And uh, my background before I was with Mises Institute, I actually worked with uh, the Financial Services Committee. I was a deputy communications director. Um, and so in that, that role, uh, I dealt with some of the press coming into hearings, um, also uh, you know, wrote articles for individual members, pushing some of the bills that we were working with. Uh, luckily, I had, had to write one that was really on a bad topic. It was an XM bill. I kind of inserted some, like, this is obviously a bad thing, but I have to write in favor of it sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and then, then got to the Mies Institute and been guy ever since. So uh, on, on that, because I know we're a little pressed on time. Uh, yes, it's 1.30 now. 
we'll try to squeeze in what we can in the next 20 minutes. So you still have 10 minutes then to go up to the next thing. Uh, so I dropped out of academia. I have an academic background also. I was in the PhD program at Indiana University in uh, political science, and I didn't last all that long there. But I did learn some important things in graduate school, and these are applicable to non-academic writing as well. So these are, these are three things we want to keep in mind whenever we're writing things for people who uh, are, are reading our articles, sipping their morning coffee. And this is what I tell a lot of the time when people... They send me an article and I'm reading it and my eyelids start to get heavy and I don't understand what this article is even really about or where it's going and I'm trying to imagine who would read this. And I also often will tell the writer, you got to imagine that the person reading this is like a stockbroker or an accountant or maybe even a medical doctor who kind of vaguely likes our stuff and they're reading it over their morning coffee. They're kind of procrastinating starting their workday a little bit and they want to read this thing and they want to learn something from it, but they only have like six or seven or eight minutes to do it. So you got to think about that guy or girl when you're uh, writing uh, this stuff up. Or conversely, it's an afternoon article and it's, you know, they're, they're back from lunch and they're, they're procrastinating a little bit there right before they get back. And so they're sipping their afternoon drink, whatever that is. And they're, they're, they want to read it fast and they want it to be interesting. And then when they want to be done with it in six minutes and they want to think, oh yeah, I learned something that was very interesting. Thanks to the author. Uh, but if we tax them too much, it's going to be a problem. So keep these, these, these three things in mind, and which I also learned in graduate school. So if you go on to graduate school from here, be prepared to learn these lessons. It will be very humiliating. One, you're not as uh, brilliant as you think you are. So keep that in mind. So that you're, you're not going to overwhelm your reader with just, oh, man, this is just so amazing. I can't stop reading because I want to I share more in the knowledge of this brilliant writer. They're never going to think that. <laughs> Uh, two, your ideas aren't as original or inventive as you think they are. Whereas you think, oh, I got this brilliant new idea that nobody's ever thought of before. Well, all that tells me that you haven't read enough because somebody already thought of it somewhere, I guarantee you. And so you want to, you got to think in terms of maybe repackaging this idea in a way that makes it easier for people to understand. And also more importantly, drawing upon people who already did all the work for you. I get so many articles of people are like reinventing the wheel on some topic and then they never even quote anything else on the website or anything, or they never mention any authors or anything like that. So use the resources that are available to you and approach it with humility in terms of recognizing that this is a topic that people are probably maybe already familiar with or other people have seen, but how can I make it interesting this time on this one specific topic right now when this person's reading it? And uh, finally, number three, your reader probably isn't as interested in the topic as you are. So you've got to make it engaging. You've got to make it interesting. You, you've already been thinking about it for weeks, right? When you finally write the article and send it to me and all of that. And so it's amazing. You're really into the topic. Keep in mind that your reader, they were thinking about, you know, taking the kids to school or something five minutes earlier, and now they're reading your article and you've got to somehow get them to find your topic interesting. It's not enough to just throw it out there and just assume that everyone's going to agree with you that this is an interesting topic. So that should always just be your, uh, your basic operating you know, foundation when you're trying to put this stuff together. And, and so kind of on those points, articles that that are often, you know, are almost always rejected or, you know, if, if it comes to us and it's like 3,000 words and it's, it's you know, insulting something that someone said on C4SS, like, we don't care. No, nobody care. Nobody, you know, very few people read C4SS to begin with. Like, you know, all, all these very, you know, uh, uh, narrow inner libertarian disputes, it's not usable to real people. 
right? I mean, it's, it's fun for Facebook. Keep them to memes. You know, more power to you. I'm, I always love a good uh, good bashing, you know, someone that's a libertarian that's wrong. But it's, it's not useful for Mises.org. Um, and, you know, keep, keep it you know, short, as short as possible. Like, a really, a 600-word article uh, can be a lot more, you know, in most cases, be more effective than 2,000 words. Um, you know, you, and, and one thing that we've, we've noticed, uh, an article that always shares well is an article that a uh, fairly libertarian-ish conservative or, or you know, maybe, maybe a non-socialist leftist in some cases, like a war on, on issues like war, uh, an article that they can use to rub someone's face into it on Facebook. Um, so, for example, uh, George Pickering had an article last week on uh, the British healthcare system. Uh, it's it's one of the most successful articles we've had in the last two weeks because you know, especially during the Obamacare debates, and you know, you always have that socialist friend that says, "Hey, we need universal health care." So, having an article that the headline is, you know, was something along the, uh, you know, British healthcare is great unless you ignore the, as long as you ignore the results. Um, you know, it was, it was a good kind of just, you know, quick jab. Even if they don't click on the article, they know it's a jab. Uh, and it makes the point that you're wanting to make. And you can use it to rub in someone's face. It's it's the Tom Woods approach that, you know, your Facebook friends are wrong about X. Those actually tend to be pretty good topic uh, topics for fa for, uh, for The Wire. I can tell you right now I can get 10,000 clicks in six hours. I run an article with the title, Canadian Healthcare T Kills Babies. Yeah. And everybody will share it because it'll show how the Canadian healthcare system sucks and all of that. Now, unfortunately, I can't really use that title because it would turn off some of our core audience. But that topic is really good. And you have to know what you're talking about, though. And that takes us to kind of the next topic here. And everything I'm saying applies to, like, everything. This isn't just, like, our site. Like, if you want to get noticed, like, by media people, you want people to reprint your stuff... All of these concepts apply everywhere. Uh, and shortness is really important. Nobody writes press releases that are more than like 600 words anymore. Uh, and maybe some huge corporations still do that because they're just important enough and then they figure someone else will edit it down. But for the most part, it's got to be prepackaged. It's got to go out the door, ready for some journalists to use it uh, as, as much as is as possible. And it's got to be short and easy to read because no one, no one's going to read it. And actually on, on that point, there's a, a website out there, uh, called Axios that's been, it's, it's, I find it very useful. It covers national politics from the founder Politico. It's, you know, it's very DC centered, uh, but, but they pride themselves on, uh, intelligent brevity. And that's kind of the approach that we're looking at, at some, a, a, a in addition to the, the Mises wire going forward, it's having more quick, intelligent, uh, you know, brief takes on topics as they come along. Um, so again, like, bre brevity is it's a virtue in itself. So, I mean, mm, uh, Axios, A-X-I-O-S. I recommend checking it out. So there's always going to be a place for the, uh, and I don't want to like say never write these sorts of things. Um, the the more in-depth philosophical article that's extremely specific to libertarian stuff. Um, and that touches a little bit about what you're talking about, talking about some like infighting and things like that. Sometimes that's appropriate. David Gordon does that a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> David, however, can get away with that because he knows he has his depth of knowledge is sufficient that he can probably bring up something original and little known into that debate. Uh, for the most part, though, for most of us, we need to stick to something that's going to be more general knowledge. But the first thing that you need to be able to do with anything uh, whether it's a press release for the general public or for my site or whatever, is really you have to establish that you're actually an expert on this topic. And you might say, oh, well, I haven't studied it for 10 years. I'm not really an expert. Well, that's 
to be an expert on something, all you have to do is usually just be more interested in it than other people and have spent, you know, a few days reading background stuff on it and think and spending real time thinking about it. Most people never do that, right? They haven't read any books on any topic. If you read 10 books on foreign policy, if you read 10 books on the history of Afghanistan, you now know more on the history of Afghanistan than like 99.9% .9 of the American population. That's all it takes. So don't hold the concept of being an expert too high. All you need to do is be enough of an expert that you illustrate with your writing that you know more about it than most people, that you're a person that people can actually go to to get reliable information about something. And so if you run an article, and I love this when this happens, we run an article on our site, you present yourself as enough of an expert on something that I get, I often get calls then from radio shows or some other publication that wants to re, uh, republish it. And that sort of thing. And then I'll pass on their request to the writer and so on so that they can do a quick radio show and stuff like that. So it doesn't take a whole lot. You just have to show, hey, this is a topic I know a lot about and I can speak intelligently about it in a 15-minute radio conversation. And you need to communicate that, though, with your writing. It's not enough to just have an opinion about something or to make clever remarks about statists and stuff like that. You actually have to show that maybe you have some knowledge about a historical event uh, or maybe something that's going on right now having to do with policy and so on. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't require years of study to be better informed on this, but you have to exhibit that than in your writing. So one of the best things you can do for yourself in terms of getting your material picked up, uh, in terms of getting other people to notice it and ask you to talk about it further, is to really bring information to this article that other people aren't, that shows that you have some kind of uh, specialty here that uh, they're going to be able to get something from you that nobody else is saying. And that's fairly difficult to do. That's why a lot of people just end up expressing opinions in their articles rather than showing information. But I can tell you that our most shared articles a lot of the times are those articles that look at uh, historical episodes that people don't know a lot about. Um, so, you know, a recent article was about the Peruvian Empire, the Incan Empire, right? He actually did, Ebeling did some real research about the history of that. And that got shared around a lot because it's not a topic other people see around very much. And then there's all that stuff where you parse a lot of data about hospital data in the UK or here or gun crime data, which I ran a bunch of those because they kept getting a bunch of hits if you just, if you can find this source of data online. So all you do is you find a few data points and then you can express your specific opinion, right? You put that libertarian twist on it or whatever, but you've got to at least throw something out there for the reader where they're going to come away thinking, oh, I didn't know that. And not, oh, look, now I know the opinion of this nobody I've never heard before. <laughs> what they want to think is, oh, I learned something new. It's the real facts, right? And then I can use these facts to rub it in the nose of some like leftist I hate yes. or something like that. But it has to have real information there. And that's how it, it, it spreads out and how people use it. And it ends up then producing more interest in your work to a wider audience. Do you have anything to add to that? No, nah, I think you covered it. Okay. Um, why don't you go ahead and do your part, okay. and then we can do like some, you know, yeah. Q and A and stuff like that. And, and so now that we have given, yeah, you know, Ryan's kind of covered, uh, you know, what we look for and uh, you know, some skills to use. Now I'm going to you know, try to cover why you should want to write for an economic blog, or in particular, the best economic blog out there. Um, 
And so, you know, there used to be a time where most of like the economic analysis and, and, and back and forth happened in academic journals, right? Uh, and there's a, a lot of great, great stuff that can be found in the history of economic journals. I highly suggest looking back in some of the old uh, uh, Austrian debates, uh, the, the dehomogenization of Mises and Hayek, uh, which, you know, with Salerno and Dr. Holzman. Uh, you know, going, you know, battling out with some of the, the George Mason people. Lots of fantastic insights and stuff that I think is relevant in a lot of today's stuff, um, which actually could be mined for great blog articles today. Um, but as you know, even the Economist, um, you know, it's, it's talking about you know, those days have moved on, right? Everything's mo moved towards a, a you know, shorter format, and really the interaction out there is happening in the blogosphere. Um, and in fact, even major policy decisions are being influenced directly by economic blogs, um, usually for the worse, because those tend to get uh, that's gotten a lot of traction out there lately. And this guy, Scott Sumner, uh, and, and really for the longest time, he was you know, kind of you know, one of the few guys out there in the lone wilderness talking about NGDP targeting as a monetary policy tool. Well, I, I guarantee you within five years or so, the Fed is going to be directed by NGDP targeting. Um, so he, he kept the idea alive. People started uh, picking up on it. Christina Romer wrote an article in 2012 saying Ben Bernanke needs to have his Paul Volcker moment and go with this NGDB targeting rule. You now have, and for the life of me, I can't understand it, Cato and Mercatus are on board with this. And this isn't picking a fight with them. It's just saying that you know, they're now embracing an idea that really got out there from the blogosphere. Um, and so now you have this growing, you know, Paul Krugman said nice things about it. So you have this broad bipartisan coalition on this topic. Um, and it all started from, you know, some guy with a, a blog without a, a, you know, particularly prestigious academic background. Uh, nothing gets Scott Sumner. He just, he, you know, he, he wasn't, uh, it wasn't Paul Krugman, even really as far as uh, academic uh, prestige. I mean, of course, I, had to, I, of course, I had to leave the what fun ad for. A, um, and this also has worked well for Austrians, right? Um, you know, perhaps the, the, the best punch, you know, it's, it's always great to talk about our ideas, but, you know, we really catch on when people start punching back. Uh, and, you know, one of the few times where we have actually gotten a major Keynesian to respond to our point or our, uh, you know, arguments uh, was when Paul Krugman was responding to a Bob Murphy article. You can't really see it there. But, you know, he was seeing the New York Times responding, hey, this Bob Murphy guy, uh, you know, wrote this article. Here's why he's wrong. He actually ends by saying it's a fairly interesting idea. Uh, but he says, like, it's, it's the same thing as uh, I remember some snide remark like. You know, voodoo is a similarly it's, it's interesting. It's it's wrong, but it's interesting. Um, but again, so, so here's this was literally a Mises.org article that Paul Krugman decided to respond to. So again, this this sort of back and forth. This isn't happening in academic journals. It's happening in economic blogs. Uh, and it's always interesting to see who ends up quoting people. This is from an op-ed uh, from Corey Lewandowski, who was Donald Trump's campaign manager through most of the campaign. Um, so here he is quoting Louis Runet. Uh, which between between this, yeah, between this and his, his Bob and Tom show appearance earlier, you know his ego is going to be insane. But <laughs> but but so here, Corey Lewandowski, Trump's campaign manager, saying this. Now it's an article by a guy that Trump knows and likes, uh, saying that Trump's speech in Poland was great. So we know for a fact that Donald Trump has now read Louis Rene's uh, name. He has read the, as the Mises Institute pointed out. He's right at a point that is in favor of his, uh, you know, what he was saying at the time uh, and actually read something that was published in the Mises Wire. Now, I mean, is that going to change his mind? You know, I, I don't think uh, I, I have little hope that Donald Trump's going to go out there and appoint Joe Salerno, you know, Fed chairman because uh, 
you know, he read Louis Rene's you know, name, but still like, you know, you, there's all these kind of interesting ways that information from our site can get out there uh, uh, via, you know, interesting blog posts. Uh, now, that, now again, this is that, that's for economic blogs as a whole and why they matter. Why should you write for Mises Wire? Because again, I'm the propagandist of the group. I, I'm I'm going to shamelessly sell you that this is the outlet that you should be writing for. Um, one is that you know our website averages you know a little over you know 1.2 million views a month, which is a high traffic site. We got have about you know over 12,000 readers daily. You know this can fluctuate, but you know it's a it's a fairly fairly st uh, steady average. And I think one of the most exciting things is that we have outside outlets picking up our articles. And it's also a, a kind of a, a range of outlets doing it. So, you know, we have Zero Hedge, which is always kind of, you know, you know, they love selling the end of the world is near. So kind of that's our target demographic, really, in many ways. Um, but you also have Business Insider, which is a very mainstream blog um, who runs, who's run. I had, I, yeah, I've had uh, a Lou Rockwell and Murray Rothbard reposted articles appear in Business Insider. Which I, I find awesome. Like again, you know, like they're they're posting a Murray Rothbard article on the gold standard in Business Insider. Like that's that's kind of cool. I'm also Seeking Alpha, which is kind of a very niche site. You know, we have a lot of trade sites that republish from our stuff. Right. Seeking Alpha is an investment site. Yeah. So we we do have very much that sort of audience yeah. too. The more the more technical stuff. So there is an audience for your more technical economic stuff. It's usually the investment community yeah. like at Seeking Alpha. And it's always interesting seeing the different spins that we expect you know, with manipulating headlines and images. Um, you know, you can get all sorts of interesting takes uh, from various outlet, uh, outlets. So, for example, uh, this was how I had an article picked up by Business Insider about, uh, when Steve Mnuchin was uh, appointed. You know, I, it, was, it was not very favorable to him. Uh, you know, he's not going to drain the swamp. He's a Wall Street banker. Well, then, one of my favorite uh, uh, syndicating outlets is uh, good old Infowars. <laughs> and uh, so, so their headline, <laughs> you know, is, is he a patriot? <laughs> Possible. Um, and so again, like this is just an example of, of you know, sites out there are kind of looking for, they have their own agendas, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for their own thing. Um, and so, you know, our content can, can fit all different types of audiences. This is the downside of being picked up by other sites, of course. Yeah. yeah. Fortunately, most of the civilized world recognize it just because your article's picked up by crazy fan. Right. It says Mises.org on there. It doesn't, doesn't say make you crazy. Yeah. So if if you don't think the chemicals in the water turn the frogs gay, well, that's okay. You still you still have some plausible deniability uh, if you are uh, drafted into the Infowar army. Um, then another really cool part is uh, translations. You know, we, we have a very active uh, group of international students, as has been demonstrated this week. And so, you know, for example, Ryan here has been published in all sorts of uh, languages. You know, we've got, yeah, we have Germany, Brazil, uh, you know, uh, Mises Espanol, uh, this is, you know, Italy. Uh, I, think, I, think that was, I think that was Japan. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was uh, China, maybe. Yeah, um, it's China. So again, like so, so one article can really go across the world uh, because of the sort of people that follow and care about the content that Mises Institute produces. Um, and then also, again, if, if for our scholars in the room, um, you know, the, the incentive is to write. You know, there, there still is a career incentive to writing papers, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we have a lot of great stuff that comes out in, uh, you know, QJE and and our other, you know, and various. You know, the, the fact that we have scholars publishing and outside. Uh, academic journals is wonderful for the institute, the movement, the, these ideas. Um, but one of the best ways to get them actually read is to, to do a popular version of your, your data. So, so you know, for example, Jonathan Newman, uh, you know, he's done academic work on uh, survey data. 
So he applied that to responding to a point made by Noah Smith of uh, Bloomberg. And, you know, so he was able to turn, you know, the, and his academic work into a pop article, which then Noah Smith actually then dismissively tweeted. And so it brought in, you know, so that brought its own sort of uh, eyeballs on his article. Um, again, people, people reading your stuff just to hate it, you know, that, that works too. Um, and then on the other side, uh, you know, Carl Frederick Israel wrote a paper about uh, the, the impact of central bank policy on un unemployment. Rather than simply, you know, submitting his full paper to an academic journal, leaving it alone, he was able to turn that data into, you know, a 900, I think it was actually probably a little bit longer, 1200 word article, uh, but great topic, well written, uh, and turned into a format that normal people can use and share. Um, and so that, that's just a little bit about that Mises.org itself. And, and one suggestion I would make is that if, if you email an article, put, a, put both our names on it. So that way, you know, it, it, we get a lot of stuff that comes in. Two eyes are always better than one. Uh, well, ideally, I guess four eyes is better than, yeah, but you got the idea. So, so uh, you know, my suggestion, put, put both our names on there. Um, if you want to actually talk to me, I mean, like, seriously, I would recommend you call between nine and five yeah. mountain time. It's North America. Yes. That is, that's yeah. where you're likely to actually talk yes. to Yes. It's always a good conversation. So, you know, just, just for if you've got some free time. Now, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Yeah, but if, if, if there's, you know, maybe time for one, one question. Well, I wanted to say something real quick questions. to save you some grief. Yeah. And, I, you know, I could have like a whole 20 minutes on this. This was initially supposed to be its own talk was how do you talk to reporters yes. from like the New York Times? Because <laughs> sometimes we run into problems with Austrians talking to reporters from the New York Times. <laughs> and so this is just basic standard practice in PR. So say you're successful and you have an article that, that someone gets really interested in and you get contacted. Uh, they call you, you're busy, you're in the middle of something. So you pick up the phone, hey, this is Bob Wilson from the New York Times. I wanted to talk to you about this article that you wrote on uh, child labor. <laughs> and so this is, you, you do not talk to them immediately. You, you say, oh, can I call you back in 10 minutes because I'm like in the middle of an important conversation. You could be like in the bathroom. It doesn't matter. You just say, can I call you back? You hang up the phone and then you write down like three or four bullet points that you are going to make in this talk to the reporter and you stick to that. So you write down the, the five important things about child labor, whatever that you're going to say. When you're done communicating those points, you're done talking. You do not want to do a two-hour long kind of meandering conversation with someone from the New York Times or any outlet like that. You are not going to convert them to libertarianism. You are not going to show them just all this brilliant stuff. They're not interested. All they want to do... They've already decided what they're going to say in the article. That, For all you know, the headline of the article is Moron from Mises Institute Defends Child Labor. So all you can do at that point is just state what your actual point is forcefully, quickly, and then be done in 15 minutes, and then you hang up the phone again. So this is just... This is an important thing. They're, you know, the article's going to be like 600 words or something that they're writing. You want to keep it on your terms. You don't let them kind of pretend to be your friend and act like you know, they're going to they're gonna now make libertarianism popular or something. This is just <laughs> one of those things that's very important. So yeah, you want to be uh, 
uh, aware of your audience, you wanna get them interested in your ideas, but when, if you do get contacted about your ideas, just stick to those ideas. Don't talk a bunch about yourself. Don't make the story about yourself or about your organization or anything like that. You wanna just stick to that information. And then that will in itself further uh, emphasize your status as an expert because this is a topic I know and I'm interested in, in this topic and I can speak on this topic and my personal background or whatever is kind of irrelevant is what you're communicating to them. So you don't want to turn it into like about your feelings and your mom or whatever. You just want to stick to that topic and then other people will read that in the New York Times because when a, when a reporter is looking for someone to contact they're going to do a LexisNexis search and they're going to look up a topic and your name might then come up because it was in the New York Times and then the next thing you know they're calling you about that topic later as well. Now this of course can take years to build up this sort of reputation. Uh, but you want to make yourself into a resource for these people but you want to always kind of maintain a certain distance and be an expert on this topic without it being about you know your journey as a libertarian or something like that. So we could go on and on, but that's just something I wanted to throw out there to save you grief in the future and just always be focused on communicating just this information in as succinct and quick a way as you can. And often just writing that initial column is the first step. And, and I'm going to throw another thing out there completely unrelated to that is that the other way that you really can write for the Institute is through Twitter. Um, you know, if, if you ha if you can be, a, if you can have, you know, interesting points that you can make in 140 characters. I love retweeting people. Uh, Louis has gotten some, some good response from tweets. I love uh, Parrot Parra Byland is one of is one of the best scholars we have out there on Twitter. Um, so if, you know, and if you think you've posted something particularly good on Twitter, send me a message either directly to the, you know, a DM to the Mises Twitter page or my own, at the Bishop, because um, I'd love to retweet that too. And, and you know, Twitter is not a growing platform necessarily, but it's, it is very use, useful within journalistic circles. And so that's another way of, of, you know, just another way of being able to get your name out there, your ideas out there. Um, and it goes back to the point about brevity being itself a virtue. Um, so if, I think really we don't have any time for questions, time. Uh, but if, if you, for our office hours will be held by the keg during the barbecue. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll be glad to answer individual questions there. <laughs>